Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Beloved listeners, welcome to today's radio program. I'm Carlotte Economo and I'm very happy to be back with you to present the New Zealand Greek Metropolis's Christian Orthodox Radio program on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM. This is with the blessing of our Archbishop Gerios Gerios Meron. We hope you'll find today's program both interesting and spiritually enlightening with its mix of readings and explanations from the Holy Gospel, question for the priest, readings from spiritual books, some discussion on the lives of the saints, hymns and notices. Now for a few words of introduction in Greek. Αγαπητοί ακροατές, χαίρετε. Σας ευχαριστούμε που είστε συντονισμένοι μαζί μας για ακόμη μία φορά στην εκπομπή της Ερεάς Μητροπόλεως Νέας Ζηλανδίας στο Wellington's Axis Radio 106,1 FM η οποία γίνεται με την ευλογία του Μητροπολίτου μας Κύριος Κύριος Μύρονας. Ελπίζουμε να σας έχουμε μαζί μας καθόλη την διάρκεια της σημερινής εκπομπή, από την οποία εύχομαι όλοι μας να οφειλεθούμε πνευματικά. Και τώρα ας ξεκινήσουμε το πρόγραμμά μας με την προσευχή Βασιλεύ Ουράνιε. Βασιλεύ Ουράνιε, παράκλητε το πνεύμα της αληθείας, ο πανταχού παρών και τα πάντα πληρών, ο θησαυρός των αγαθό και ζωής χορηγός, έλθε και σκήνωσεν εν ημίν και καθάρισον ημάς από πάση σκυλίδος και σώσον αγαθέτας ψυχάς ημών. O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from all impurities and save our souls, O Gracious One. Let's spend some time now talking about important church events as well as the lives of some of the church's athletes whom we commemorate either today or will do so during the week to come. Today is Forgiveness and Cheese Fair Sunday and we will hear more about this later from Father Bavlos. 
I will speak about St. Raphael Hawawini, Bishop of Brooklyn, whom we will commemorate, God willing, on the 27th, and St. Gerasimus of the Jordan, whom we will commemorate on the 4th of March. As we've said previously, the reason we read and talk about important church events and our saints is so that we learn from these and apply these learnings to our everyday lives, essentially to give us the courage and the strength to face all our trials and tribulations with faith, patience and love. Let's start out by speaking about St. Raphael Hawawini, Bishop of Brooklyn. St. Raphael was born to pious Christian parents on November the 8th in the year 1860 in Damascus, Syria. He studied Arabic grammar and mathematics at the Antiochian Patriarchate School, where he was tonsured a reader in 1874. In 1877, he accepted a position as a teacher of Arabic and Turkish, and in 1885, he was ordained a deacon. In 1886, he received his Certificate of Theology and returned to his homeland in the hope of serving the church there. Here, he impressed Patriarch Gerasimos of Antioch, who often took him along on his pastoral visits to his parishes, and when he could not be present himself, he had Deacon Raphael preach to the Word of God to the people. Deacon Raphael was not satisfied with the extent of his knowledge, however, and thirsted to learn even more. This, though, did not stem from personal pride or ambition, but came from his fervent desire to help others. So, he asked Patriarch Gerasimos to permit him to do graduate studies at a school in Russia, promising to return and serve as the Patriarch's Russian language secretary. The Patriarch gave his blessing and Deacon Raphael was accepted as a student at the Theological Academy of Kiev. In 1889 he was ordained to the Holy Priesthood and a month later was raised to the rank of Archimandriti and confirmed as head of the Antiochian Representation Church. In 1895, he was invited by the Syrian Orthodox Benevolent Society of New York to come to that city to be the priest of the Arab Orthodox community, and he arrived there on November the 2nd. On November the 5th, his first Sunday in America, he assisted Bishop Nicholas in serving the Divine Liturgy at the Russian Church in New York. Less than two weeks after his arrival, Archimandriti Raphael found a suitable place in Lower Manhattan to set up a chapel and furnished it with ecclesiastical items that he had brought with him from Russia. Bishop Nicholas blessed the chapel, which was dedicated to St. Nicholas of Mera. Here he remained teaching, preaching and celebrating the divine services for his parishioners. It was not long, however, before he heard of smaller communities of Arab Christians scattered throughout the length and breadth of North America. Since these Arab immigrants had no priest to care for them, it was not surprising that some should turn to other Christian traditions or completely neglect their religious duties. 
This was an ongoing concern for St. Raphael throughout the course of his ministry, and so in the summer of 1896 he undertook the first of several pastoral journeys across the continent of America. He visited 30 cities between New York and San Francisco, seeking out Christ's lost sheep in cities, towns, and on isolated farms. He fed the spiritually hungry people with the word of God in each place where he stopped and performed marriages, baptisms, heard confessions and celebrated the divine liturgy in the homes of the faithful where there was no church building. In 1898, with the blessing of St. Nicholas, St. Raphael produced his first book in the New World, an Arabic-language service book called The Book of True Consolation and the Divine Prayers. This book of liturgical services and prayers was very useful to priests in celebrating the divine services and also to the people in their personal prayers. The English version published by Archimandriti Serafim Nassar is still being used today. Between May and November in 1898, St. Raphael set off on his second pastoral tour. During this trip, he became convinced of the need for Arabic-speaking priests to serve in the new churches he had established. With Bishop Nicholas's blessing, he was able to bring qualified priests from Syria, and he also sought out educated laymen whom he could recommend for ordination. In time, Bishop Nikon succeeded Bishop Nicholas as the ruling bishop in America, and on December the 15th, he went to serve liturgy at the Syrian Church of St. Nicholas. Saint Raphael told his people that his, their new archpastor was one who, and to use his words, has been sent here to tend the flock of Christ, Russians, Slavs, Syro-Arabs and Greeks, which is scattered across the entire North American continent. In 1899, St. Raphael received permission from Bishop Dijon to start collecting funds for a cemetery and for building a new church to replace the chapel which was located in an old building on a dirty street. Soon after, he left on another pastoral tour of 43 cities and towns, travelling by land and sea, and undeterred by the obstacles and difficulties before him, he spent seven months in the northeastern, southern and midwestern regions of the United States. Saint Raphael ministered to Greeks and Russians as well as Arabs, performing weddings and baptisms and regularizing the weddings of Orthodox people who had been married by non-Orthodox clergy. He also chrismated some children who had been baptised by Catholic priests. By 1902, both his major projects were completed. He had established a cemetery, and an existing church building in Brooklyn had been remodelled for Orthodox worship. However, since the number of parishes within the Diocese of North America was growing, Bishop Dijon found it impossible to visit all of them, and so, in 1903, the Holy Synod of Russia unanimously elected Archbishop Raphael to be the Bishop of Brooklyn while retaining him as head of the Syro-Arab Orthodox Mission in North America. 
And so, on the third Sunday of Lent in 1904, St. Raphael became the first Orthodox bishop to be consecrated on American soil. Following his consecration, Bishop Raphael continued his pastoral labours, ordaining priests and assigning them to parishes, and helping Bishop Nihon in the administration of the diocese. In July of 1905, Bishop Raphael consecrated the grounds for St. Nihon's monastery and blessed the orphanage in Pennsylvania. For the next ten years, he tended his growing flock, with the growth of his New York community came an increase in the number of children, and he was very concerned about their future, because many of them did not speak Arabic and were going to non-Orthodox churches, where Sunday school classes were conducted in English. Bishop Raphael saw the absolute necessity for using English in worship and in education for the future progress of the Syro-Arab mission, so he established an evening school to educate them in English, but in a Christian atmosphere. Toward the end of 1912, Bishop Raphael became ill while working in his office. Doctors diagnosed him with a heart ailment that eventually caused his death. After two weeks, he felt strong enough to celebrate liturgy in his cathedral. Then, over the period 1913 to 1914, he continued to make pastoral visits to various cities. In 1915, he fell ill again and spent two months at home, bearing his illness with patience. At 12.40am on the 27th of February, he was rested from his labours. They called him, but he did not answer. They shook him, but he was gone. His funeral was attended by hundreds of people, including clergy from all ethnic backgrounds, illustrating his love for all the people of God, regardless of where they came from. The sacred relics of St. Raphael, the good shepherd of the lost sheep in North America, were first interred in a crypt beneath the holy table at his St. Nicholas Cathedral in Brooklyn in 1915, before being moved to the Syrian section of Mount Olivet Cemetery in Brooklyn in 1922. His holy relics were finally translated to the Holy Resurrection Cemetery at the Antiochian village in Pennsylvania in 1988. His sanctity was officially proclaimed by the Holy Synod of the Orthodox Church in America on March the 29th in the year 2000, and his glorification was celebrated on May the 29th of that year at the Monastery of St. Dekon in Pennsylvania. May we all have his intercessions. Rejoice, O Father of
Let's now speak about Saint Gerasimus of Jordan. Saint Gerasimus was born in the province of Ligia in the southern part of Asia Minor. His parents were wealthy, prosperous people, and he became a merchant, frequently visiting the Egyptian hermits in his travels. From a very early age, Saint Gerasimus developed a great love of God, and as he grew older, he found he had little in common with other young people of his own age, who were only interested in having fun. He realized that the world and an attachment to it only brought many needless cares and sufferings. So he yearned to serve God and be pleasing to him. In Egypt he grew in spiritual strength and wisdom, and then he again returned to his native province of Ligier. Later, towards the end of the reign of the holy emperor Theodosius the Younger, he went to Palestine where he settled in the wilderness near the Jordan River. So many men followed him there because of his reputation for virtue that he built a monastery where novices lived in a common house and the proven monks lived in a cluster of little cells. They numbered about 70 in total. The monastery was approximately 25 miles from Jerusalem and about 100 yards from the Jordan River. Five days a week, each monk was to keep silent in a solitary cell, doing simple handiwork such as weaving mats or baskets out of palm leaves. During these five days, no cooked food was eaten. The only food eaten was a small amount of dried bread, roots and water which was brought from the monastery. On Saturdays and Sundays, all the monks went to the monastery to attend divine liturgy and receive Holy Communion. Afterwards, they ate some cooked food and drank a little wine. The work that had been completed during the week was given to the abbot. Then, on Sunday afternoon, each monk departed again for his solitary cell in the wilderness, taking only a little bread, roots, a vessel of water, and palm branches to weave baskets. Each monk had only a single old robe, a mat on which to sleep, and a small vessel for water. Whenever the monks left their cells, the doors were left open so that anyone could enter and take whatever he wished of the monks' few possessions. In this way, they prevented any attachment to material possessions. During Great Lent, St. Gerasimus ate nothing at all until the glorious day of Pascha. His bodily and spiritual strength was sustained solely by receiving the holy mysteries. The monks of his monastery were fond of recalling how a lion came to greatly love the saint and served him obediently and with great humility. One day, as Saint Gerasimus was walking through the Jordan desert, he met a lion. The lion stretched out his paw and Saint Gerasimus saw that it was infected and very swollen. The lion gazed pleadingly and meekly at the elder, who sat down immediately to inspect the paw. He discovered that a thorn had lodged in the paw, and this was the cause of its suffering. The saint carefully removed the thorn, cleansed the wound, and then wrapped it with a cloth. From then on, the lion faithfully followed the saint like a disciple. Saint Gerasimus marvelled at the lion's intelligence, meekness and willingness to eat bread and whatever else could be found for him. 
The lion was given an obedience in the monastery. The monks had a donkey which carried water from the Jordan River. The lion was entrusted with the task of accompanying the donkey to the river and guarding it while it grazed on the river bank. One day, though, the lion fell asleep in the sun, leaving the donkey to graze peacefully. An Arabian merchant, passing by with his caravan of camels, saw the donkey and, thinking it was a stray, tied it to his line of camels and took it with him. The lion awoke and began to search for the donkey, but it was nowhere to be found. The beast returned to the monastery and went immediately to St. Yerasimos, who, seeing his dejected expression, thought he had eaten the donkey and asked, Where is the donkey? The lion stood in silence, hanging his head in shame. The elder praised the lion for not running away after his evil deed and instructed him to do the work of the donkey from then on. So the monks loaded a large barrel on the lion's back, as they had done before with the donkey, and sent him to the river to fetch water. One day a soldier came to the monastery to pray, and seeing the lion carrying the water, took pity on him and gave the monks three pieces of gold to buy another donkey. The lion once again resumed his former obedience of guarding the donkey. Sometime later, the Arabian merchant once again passed by the Jordan on his way to sell wheat in Jerusalem. The donkey was still with him. That day, the lion happened to be near the river, and as the caravan approached, he recognised the donkey. Roaring loudly, he rushed towards him, frightening the merchant and his companions who fled in terror. The lion grasped the donkey's reins in his teeth and led it, together with a string of camels, to the saint. When he saw the saint, he roared joyously at having found the lost donkey. Saint Yerasimus smiled gently and told his monks that the lion had been blamed most unfairly. The lion was given the name Jordan and he continued to be a most faithful disciple. He was never absent from the monastery for more than five days at a time. Saint Yerasimus reposed in peace in the year 475 and was buried in his monastery. The lion, however, was not in the monastery at that time. When he arrived later, he began to search for the saint. Father Savatios tried to explain why it was that the elder could not be found. Jordan, our elder, has left us orphans. He has departed to the Lord. The lion was not to be comforted. He refused the food that was offered and continued searching for his saint Yerasimus, roaring in great confusion. Father Savatios and the other monks stroked Jordan gently on the back and pleaded, The elder has gone to the Lord. He has left us. No words or explanations could stop the sorrowful roaring of the lion. He kept searching, now in great distress. Finally, Father Savatios said, If you do not believe us, then come with us. We will show you the place where the elder rests. Jordan was led to the tomb near the church, where Saint Yerasimus was buried. Father Savatios explained to the lion, We have buried our elder here. Father Savatios then fell to his knees and with a heavy heart began to weep. The lion now realised what had happened. He gave one last mighty roar, 
struck his head on the ground and died on the elder's grave. If you've just joined us, welcome to the Holy Metropolis of New Zealand's Christian Orthodox Radio Program on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM. I'm Carlotta Economo and I'd like to remind you that you can listen to this and previous programs at your convenience anytime that suits you through the Access Radio website at www.accessradio.org.nz. Click onto the Religion and Spirituality link, then scroll down to the Greek Orthodox Holy Metropolis of New Zealand section. It's now time for question for the priest and Father Meletheos, priest, monk and abbot from the Monastery of the Holy Archangels in Levin, will answer the question, What is Megali Saragosti, or Great Lent, given that tomorrow is the start of Great Lent? The great period of Lent before Pascha is called by the Orthodox Church Tesaracosti, or just Saracosti, which comes from the word 40, the 40 days of fasting. Great Lent is the 40 days fast which the Church observes before the great and holy week of Christ's Passion. It is a time of spiritual cleansing and renewal in preparation for celebrating the most sacred observance of the Christian year, of the Lord's Passion and Resurrection. The celebration of the Resurrection of Christ does not fall on the same date each year, but according to the determination of the position of the Moon and Spring Equinox, which is based on the original setting during the last events of the life of Christ on earth. This 40 days period of Lent is a period of abstinence from foods, but primarily from personal iniquities. Abstinence from foods, fasting alone, is a means of attaining virtue. It is not an end itself. During the period of fasting, one makes a special attempt to evaluate his calling as a Christian, to listen to the voice of the Gospel, and heed its commandments, to accept the constant invitation to enter Christ's kingdom. It is an open invitation to everyone willing to enter, who believes in Christ and repents his iniquities. Fasting encompasses the entire pious life of the Christian, as Christ proclaimed, that symbolize a deep acceptance of his warning to repent. This can be achieved not so much in terms of time, but in deeds in love of God and one's fellow men. Repent is the first word Jesus Christ spoke in the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel to the people. 
repentance as a turn over of the one's heart is the main motivation of the Christian which acts to free him from sin. One's recognition of his sin, his sorrow over it, and lastly his decision to make an about-face change of his attitude are the steps of repentance. The fundamental practices that set great land apart are fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. These are of course part of daily Christian life, things we should be doing all the time. We became lazy and inattentive. However great land is the time in which we get back to basics, return to our Christian discipline, and once more set our lives on the right path. During Great Lent, the Tipikon, which is the Church's rule book for the services and fasting, prescribes that on weekdays we practice xerophagia, dry eating, that is, that we refrain from eating meat, dairy products and food cooked on oil, and that we not drink alcoholic beverages. On weekends we consume oil and may drink wine. On the Feast of the Annunciation and Palm Sunday some, sometimes, the Tipikon states that we may eat fish. Of course, these guidelines must be followed with discernment, according to the age and physical condition of each member of the household, and with the blessing of our spiritual father. But at least we should not eat meat or dairy products for the forty days, except for small children who may need some milk, and the elderly, or chronically ill, who may need protein-rich food to avoid consequences to their health. During Great Lent, there will be more services at our parish church. We should not only be strict about not missing the Sunday services, but also attend at least one more additional service per week, such as the Heretizmi, Salutations of the Theotokos on Friday evening, or Megapodipnon, Great Compline, and the Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified Gifts, Proyasmeni, served during the week, or the Divine Liturgy on Saturdays. We should also be faithful to family prayers at home, keeping our oil lamp lit, sensing our whole house daily, generally increasing our efforts to be serious about putting prayer at the center of our family life. Almsgiving is the English translation of eleemosyne, a rich word which includes both the meaning of material giving to those in need as well as acts of charity. Lent is a good time to review what our priorities are for spending our money and our time how much of either is given to God, the Church, and those in need. One excellent practice at home would be to teach our children to set aside some of their own money for the Church or to help others, as well as to take our children to visit the sick or do a good deed for the sake of Christ. During Great Lent we should feel a distinct difference in the atmosphere at home. We bring about this Lenten atmosphere by concrete changes. For example, unplugging the TV set, cutting out loud music in the house, bringing the family together to read holy books and talk about our Christian life, constantly bringing the focus back to where it belongs. This atmospheric change, along with the fasting and church services, make Lent a special time and imprint its feeling, its special joy on the soul of a child. Since we live in a non-Orthodox society, Lent does not just happen. We have to be organized to cook fasting food, get to weekday church services, etc. It is advisable for the family to sit down, 
to plan their resolutions for Lent, and then have a family meeting with the children to explain which things are going to change, and how everyone can pitch in to make it happen, and that, though it might be a little hard, it will bring grace and joy into the home and into each soul. Great Lent and Holy Week are pre-eminent times to prepare for Holy Communion. Before Lent starts, we should block out appointment time for confessions and weeks for preparing for Communion. In Greece, it is customary for the priest to visit homes during Great Lent to perform the service of Holy Unction, Evhelio. If we make even a moderate effort, then, with the help of God's grace, the Great Lent can truly be springtime for the soul, as we sing at Vespers on the evening of the Forgiveness Sunday. Let us cheerfully begin the season of Lent and undergo the spiritual struggles. Let us purify and cleanse our souls and bodies. As we fast from foods, let us also abstain from giving in it to any of the passions and instead delight in the virtues of the Spirit. May we preserve in them with love and then be counted worthy to see the solemn passion of Christ our God and to celebrate Holy Pascha with spiritual joy. Today's Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 21. The Lord said, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father Pavlos will now join us by phone to explain today's gospel to us. So, Pali, Kesimera, Agapitimo, sing me again today to speak to your listeners, Agapitimo, a Croates, me poli agapis as milosim reato vangelio, catamatheon, pua acusume simera. Simera in a kiriaki tirofago, diladi in a teleftea kiriaki putrome, totiri, che abrio, proto theos, othos namas dosi dinami, archiname ti megalinistia. Και αυτή την ιστορία το αρχινάμε με, με το όνομα Καθαρή Δευτέρα και Καθαρή Εβδομάδα. Δηλαδή καθαρίζουμε τις ψυχές μας από τις αμαρτίες, από τις κακές σκέψεις, από πολλά φαγητά που μας βαραίνουν και να είμαστε νηστικοί και να ετοιμαζόμαστε σιγά 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 μετά από έξι εβδομάδες για τη Μευγάλη Εβδομάδα και μετά για το Πάσχα. This, uh, dear listeners, is a wonderful day, this Sunday of Tirofago, that is to say, Cheese Fair Sunday, which is the last Sunday of the pre-Lenten period. And tomorrow, as God wills and gives us strength, we enter into the 
holy and sacred feast, holy and sacred season of Lent, Great Lent we call it, or the Great Fast, the 40-day fast, which begins on Monday. We call that Monday Kathara Deftera, meaning, of course, Clean Monday, and of course the whole week. We can consider the whole week a clean week, a week where we cleanse ourselves from our evil thoughts and actions, and of course dedicate ourselves to clean living. And this includes a fast, because as you may know, sometimes our food weighs us down and keeps us from focusing on things spiritual. Uh, The simplest way to understand that is when we're satisfied, when we have everything we want, we don't think of God. But when we are a little bit hungry, perhaps a little bit on edge for one reason or another, maybe a little worry, maybe a little concern, then we think, oh God, please help me. Oh God, please come to my assistance. Oh God, be near me. And of course, God wants us to always be vigilant and thinking of him. So fasting is a good thing. The gospel reading that we just heard, though, followed Saturday's reading, which is Saturday was a wonderful opportunity to hear the gospel, which was where we where we hear the Lord's Prayer spoken in the context of liturgy, read from the gospel. And so our Lord on Saturday, yesterday, shared with us the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, and he says to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And this is very important. So when we hear today's gospel, he says, If we forgive the sins of those which are done against us, our Heavenly Father, our Father which is in the heavens, He will also forgive us our sins. Now some of us might think that's not very fair, that God should just forgive us, not to have to put a condition. But think, it is a condition that is full of love. God is saying to you, look, I want to forgive you all your sins, but let's be fair about it. If I'm going to forgive you your sins, you do the same to your brother. You forgive your brother also. On the other hand, if you don't forgive your brother, how is it that you have the boldness to ask me for forgiveness? Να το σκεφτόμαστε έτσι. Γιατί καμιά φορά λέμε, γιατί ο Θεός έτσι μας μιλάει. Άμα το κάνεις αυτό, τότε θα σε κάνω αυτό. Αυτό δεν είναι καλό. Έτσι λέμε μέσα μας, που είναι διαβολικό. Αλλά πρέπει να λέμε τι. Αυτό να λέμε, ο Θεός μας θέλει να συγχωρέσει όλες τις αμαρτίες μου. Όλες τις αμαρτίες που έχω κάνει. Και μόνο περιμένει από μένα να συγχωρέσω τον αδαφό μου. Είναι μεγάλο πράγμα αυτό. Όχι. Δεν είναι μεγάλο πράγμα. Και είναι δίκαιο. Και άμα εγώ δεν έχω τη δύναμη ούτε να συγχωρέσω τον αδελφό μου, τι θα έρθω θα έχω να μπροστά το Θεό να μιλάω και να ζητήσω από το Θεό να με συγχωρέσει. Δηλαδή, ο Θεός είναι δίκαιος. God is completely just. No matter what we may think of him, if he is saying to us, if you forgive the sins of others, I will forgive you. We need to know that that is a just God. We wouldn't really want him any other way. Because if he forgave us without us forgiving, just think if the shoe were on the other foot. In other words, someone did something wrong to you. And you hear that God forgave him, even though he didn't forgive you. You would say, wait a minute, Lord. That fellow never forgave me what I did to him. 
are you really sure you want to forgive him his sin? You might be upset. You might even be angry with God. But God is dikios. He's righteous. He's holy. He's good. So he wants us to forgive our brother. And so he, if you can put it in this way, he bribes us a little bit, like a, chi- a parent sometimes coaxes their children with candy. He says, look, I'll forgive you all of this, all the evil things you've done. Because remember, God is forgiving not just the things we think we've done, but every sin, even sins of thought, even sins of disposition, even sins of will. Not just, you know, did we steal something? Did we say a, a false witness? Did we give a, tell a lie to someone? He forgives us every sin, even our thoughts. So we say, well, I never killed anyone. Yes, you never killed anyone, but how many times did you think about hurting someone and hurting them enough to destroy them? Perhaps many times. Or you might say, well, I never committed adultery. But how many times did your thoughts go to that place? Or you might say, I never gave a false witness. But how many times when a false witness was being given, did you remain silent and not stand up for your brother or your sister? So we want God to forgive not just the sins that everybody knows about, the ones that are obvious, let's say, but to forgive every sin. And the sins that he asks us to forgive, most of us, we don't know the thoughts of our brother. So the only sins that we want to forgive of that brother are the sins that are kind of obvious. So can you see the comparison? We are asked to forgive a few sins. God forgives all of our sins. So it's a very, very fair deal for us. For God, of course, God being righteous isn't expecting fairness in that way. So we are blessed when God gives us this commandment. God loves us very much, dear brothers and sisters, and that's something that Lent is meant to teach us. He says to us, when you fast, don't fast like the other people who want to be seen by everyone that they're fasting, but do it in secret. Here's another blessing of Lent. Of course, we're Orthodox and we're going to fast. And we're going to fast from meat, and we're going to fast from cheese, and we're going to fast from fish. You are somehow on those days a vegan, as they say in today's language. Try to hide your fasting, not to make it a broadcast to say, oh, I'm an Orthodox, I can't eat that. No, we don't want anybody to even know that. Just do it because it's between you and God. And sometimes, out of love for your brother, you will eat something that you shouldn't. Because your brother isn't Orthodox, he doesn't know anything about it, and he offered you hospitality. He says, hey, can I buy you a burger? Now, if it's that kind of thing, you say, well, you know what? How about a fish sandwich instead? Or how about how about a, a vegetarian sandwich? I'd prefer that. But if he insists, he says, no, 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 no. This is my restaurant. I just made the great steak. I want you to try it. Anyway, go ahead. But then, in secret, you fast even more, even more. So we don't want to be hypocritical about fasting. Christ is very careful to remind us not to be hypocritical. Don't do it just for men. So people can pat you on the back and say, oh, what a good faster is he. But do it for God.
do it for your own soul. And as you said at the beginning of the program, you want to remember to fast so that you can feel a little bit of hunger. So when you think about God, you think, oh, something inside you aches a little bit because our soul should be aching for God every day. Sometimes we live such contented lives, we don't even think of that ache that should be natural to us, that we are not one with God. So we fast, and then our stomach aches, or maybe our muscles ache, or some other ache comes upon us. And that tiny physical ache is a way to remind us of our spiritual need to be with God. So, those are the things I wanted to say to you today in, in the message that I'm sharing with you, so that you can begin this Lenten fast with joy and gladness. We don't want you to focus on things that are, are really not important. Of course we fast, but don't be hypocritical about it. If you happen to eat meat here or there, or a little bit of dairy, don't think, oh, now I can't uh, be a Christian. Just return as quickly as you can to the fast. And, and when you are forced somehow to fast, to break the fast, for the love of a neighbor or friend, then secretly, in secret, fast a little bit more. Maybe go without a meal or in some way to let God know that you really do want to be obedient to this very simple direction. Πάλι σας ευχαριστώ και σας ευχηθώ και να έχετε καλή αρχή της νηστείας. I say not only that you have a blessed beginning to your land.
done over most of the last few weeks and all of last year, we will read a little about St. Nectarios, given that our Metropolitan has asked that we try and speak a little about the saint of our times as often as we can. So, let's pick up where we left off from the book St. Nectarios of Aegina, The Saint of Our Century by Sotos Hondropoulos. We were part way through chapter 20 of the book. The director, having finally found a footing against Nectarios, called him to his office. He also made sure that the secretary was present. It is quite sad, your eminence, that you concern yourself with peasants, yet neglect the children who have left their families and homes and come so far to study at this holy place for spiritual nourishment. There has recently been a commotion among the students regarding the poor quality of the food, and it appears that you have been totally unaware of this, preferring to concern yourself with a few females. Just who are these women who have free passes and who distract you anyway? Nectarios lifted his eyes, looked at him, and chose to say nothing. What do you have to say? he insisted. I shall look into the matter, he answered softly. What do you mean that you will look into it? he asked. Is that sufficient to satisfy you? I shall take care of it, Nectarios answered again. The director continued to talk and talk, working himself up, presenting the case with utmost exaggeration. Nectarios did not utter a word and left the room when he was excused. How could this happen, he thought? How could those poor girls be taken so out of context? He was simply helping him the way he helped any Christian brother or sister. His frock symbolized mourning and love, and as a cleric it was his duty to help. He could never turn anyone away or dishearten anyone. 
there were some who did not seek his help, like his brother Haralambos. Even though his children were many and he struggled to support them, he never accepted Nectarios' offers of help. These girls, though, were a different story. They sought his protection, guidance and advice. Besides, Chrysanthi was a rare human being. She was a humble person who was deprived of sight of the world, but was graced instead with great spiritual vision. She was not learned like Helen Keller, so that she would never know of the great scientists of the West, theatrical playwrights, scholars, or the avant-garde who sought in vain the mysteries of our vast and awesome universe. However, her simple nature assured her of a special relationship with the Lord, and she was, nevertheless, able to make up beautiful odes and verses in her mind for him. Indeed, such gifts are to the Almighty among the most beautiful gifts one can offer him. He decided that he would definitely help them despite what people were saying. He could not and would not abandon them. He would make their dream into reality with the help of constant prayers. He was never more sure of their dedication, their special offering to the Lord, as he was now. When Katerina and Chrysanthi came, they announced with great joy to Nectarios that they had finally found the proper place to get away from the worries of this world and devote themselves to the Lord. It was a place where they could carry out their sacred vow in peace and solitude. The place they found was on the island of Ayena. The monastery was old and deserted. It was once named Zododochos, Ye, life-giving source, and was pointed out to them by an Ayiniti who also intended to become a nun. The girls had taken the ferry boat to the island to go and see this deserted monastery. They had difficulty getting there. They had to travel through thorny donkey paths and cliffs in the blazing sun for about six and a half kilometres from the town where the boat docked. When they finally arrived and saw the deserted monastery, Katerina let out a deep sigh and exclaimed, This is God's place. When Nectarios heard about the physical location of the monastery from the girls, his former joy turned into sadness. He had a responsibility for their safety, and he did not like the fact that they would be situated in the mountains and in a deserted area, because of the fear that they could fall victims to thieves and rapists. So he suggested that they go back and examine the place again. If they became better acquainted with the area, it might put his mind at ease. So the girl set out for Aegina once again and returned to Athens delighted. The mayor of Aegina, a medical doctor named Babas, offered to assist the girls because he had hoped to see the revival of that monastery for a long time. He was even prepared to offer the monastery's ruins and the surrounding land as a donation. Nectarios knew that he should now make the trip to the ancient island, the island that became the seat of government for the martyred Premier Kapodistras after the liberation from the Turks. However, making the trip was easier said than done. Nectarios had once again fallen ill and suffered for fifteen days. He had headaches, dizziness and weakness. He literally dragged himself 
himself to his lectures. His illness had probably been brought about by the extra workload he had secretly undertaken for the school custodian, Lukianos. Lukianos had suddenly fallen ill due to failing kidneys, and having been overcome by excruciating pain one day on the job, he had to be taken to the Evangelismos hospital across the street. He then underwent a dangerous and painful operation and was ordered by his physicians not to return to work for at least two and a half months. Nectarios felt deep pity for the man and decided that he would do the work for him until he was able to come back. So Nectarios would wake up at dawn and take to cleaning toilets and floors and whatever work was left undone by the assistant janitors. Anyway, this would be another spiritual exercise like those that were, that were obligatory for monks. For the orthodox monk, no manual labour of any kind is degrading or contemptuous. That's all that we've got time to read from this book today, but God willing, we will continue again next week. So, as we're nearing the end of our time together today, we'd like to thank you for listening to the Holy Metropolis of New Zealand's Christian Orthodox broadcast on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM, and we hope that you'll join us again next Sunday. I'd like to thank all our fathers for the inspiration and help we get from them, and a special thanks again to Fathers Pavlos and Melatheos. We look forward to seeing you soon, and may our beloved Christos and Panagia bless and protect us all, and may the upcoming period of Great Lent be one of enlightenment and repentance for us all. Herete. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.